The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Jesus said, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light, and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. In the name of the Holy Trinity, one God. Amen. I always find it a bit daunting when I find that I'm having to preach on a verse of Scripture or some portion of Scripture that's so well known that everybody has their own idea of what that means. But that also presents an opportunity because it gives us a chance together to rethink something that we've heard over and over again. I don't know about you, but growing up in a Christian household and going to church school, Sunday school, in a Methodist church, I learned John 3.16, and I'll bet a lot of you did as well. And as I think through what it was I learned, it's really, it, I think, a, a combination of the uh, King James Version and the Revised Standard, which says something about the time in which I learned it. And maybe you are the same way. It's interesting to me that approximately 97% of Americans uh, claim to believe in God and that about 85% claim that they are Christians. So one can imagine that there are many people going around with that verse in their head, because many of them have been brought up as you and I, with uh, John 3.16 indelibly marked in our brains and in our hearts. It also is a verse that's had its difficulties. People have taken advantage of it. It is perhaps one of the uh, least understood and perhaps often most wrongly used verse in the New Testament. There was a, a, an evangelist in Florida who changed his name to John 3.16. I would love to meet that guy. <laughs> he wanted to make clear what he was about. And that's a good thing. We all should make clear what we are about. But there are also those who have used it in a way to separate people, to uh, define who is in and who is out. And that's certainly not what I believe this scripture is about, or what we are about. So I hope this morning that we can uh, take some time together, rethink a bit about that verse, but also that this whole section that we're looking at in this part of John. And in doing so, have a new and a fresh understanding of what that means for us in our lives, especially those of us who have known that verse in so many 
ways uh, so deeply seated within us, and that we might draw closer to John's meaning, meaning, perhaps as well. First of all, I think it's important for us to recognize that this comes uh, after the the passage we have in today's uh, selection of scripture comes after a very important section, which really is a part of a whole. Uh, Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, has come to Jesus in the night, perhaps because he's afraid and perhaps because he doesn't want to be identified with this group of people who've been following Jesus around. And Nicodemus seems to be very uh, set on finding out if this carpenter rabbi could possibly be the Messiah. So he enters into conversation with Jesus. And in the course of that, Jesus says that the only way that someone can be a part of the kingdom of heaven is if they are born again or born from above. And Nicodemus clearly doesn't get it because he comes back with a question indicating that he had heard what Jesus said in a literal sense. He says, how is it possible for anyone to re-enter their mother's womb and be born again? And then Jesus says, and hoping that he might get that this is a metaphor, talks about being born of the Spirit, and that the Spirit goes where the Spirit wills. Well, it's possible that Nicodemus didn't even understand that. So Jesus goes on and he says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then Jesus adds that famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. It's as though... What Jesus did was, after having said these things to Nicodemus, he realizes that what he needs to show him is something out of his own tradition that a Pharisee would clearly understand. And he brings up this story of the snake, the bronze snake on the staff in the wilderness. Now, that in and of itself, uh, we could devote an enormous amount of time to, but I think we have to look back on that story just a little bit in order to grasp the meaning that Nicodemus would have had with regard to that. The uh, people of God had been released from Egypt, and they were going out in in the wilderness and had been wandering for some time. And you know that God had provided for their needs. There had been manna from heaven. But yet they grumbled, and they grumbled with Moses. But in this passage, it says they also grumbled against God. They were angry with God. They were impatient. And so God, in God's anger, sends not manna this time, but snakes. And the snakes apparently were everywhere, biting people, and people were dying. So the people plead with Moses, and Moses in turn pleads with God. And God commands that Moses should fashion a bronze snake, and that snake should be put on a staff. And the people who are bitten, who look to that staff and that that snake, will be healed, and they will not die from their bites. And so Moses does as he's commanded. And in uh, the wisdom of Solomon, there's actually a little explanation of what all that was about. And in the wisdom of Solomon, it says that this was given to the people so they might have a sign and they could look upon that bronze snake and see beyond that and see the grace of God, the healing power of God, that God could make them whole. Now, Jesus says to Nicodemus, 
Remember the story about Moses in the wilderness and the snake that had to be lifted up on the staff. The Son of Man must also be lifted up. Can you believe that, Nicodemus? And I believe that Nicodemus did believe it. Because we know that at the end we hear that Nicodemus goes with Joseph of Arimathea. And the two of them participate in taking down Jesus' body from the cross and putting that body in Joseph's tomb. Any of you who have uh, studied any of Michelangelo's work remember and can't perhaps get it out of your mind that last pieta that he did when he was in his 80s. It's Nicodemus with the face of Michelangelo. Nicodemus holding the body of Jesus. Nicodemus got it. I believe he did understand that the Son of Man had to be raised up and he would be raised up so that those who turned to him and believed, who could look at him and see the work of God beyond that, see the work of God being worked out in the life of Jesus, that they would be healed, restored, and made whole. Well, I think that it's important for us to see That in this story that's really an interchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, there's something important for us as well. This is not just about something that happened 2,000 years ago. This is the heart of the gospel. I'm sure that many of you feel that you've been bitten by some snakes lately, or at least have seen some crawling around. And you too might be looking for some help from God. I think we all find ourselves in that situation from time to time. But I I think it's hard for us to sometimes connect these strange stories about snakes on poles and about Jesus and what he represents. So I think we need to go a bit deeper for you and for me. First, I think we need to see overall in this passage God's outpouring of love for the cosmos. And that's the Greek word that's used as uh, interpreted or rather translated in our scripture for the world. But when John uses the term cosmos, John intends that to be used in, as, a, as a sign or as a, uh, to, to communicate about those people who are so caught up in a system of this world that it separates them from God. In other words, he's not addressing this to the church. But he's addressing this to the world that is separated from the love of God, that don't know that love. So I think that's the first thing that we need to see is the tremendous love of God for all of God's creation, but especially for those who have been separated from the love of God and the need to restore them to that love. But I think in it we should also see that we are the body of Christ. And so... Part of the meaning, I think, for us in this account is that just as Jesus would be lifted up, we too must be willing to be lifted up. We too are the ones who not only are signs of God's grace and signs of God's love and reconciliation, but we are the ones who can actually make that real in a world that is estranged from God, just as Jesus made it real. So I think that's one aspect of this that we need to see. The love of God for the world. The love of God for all of those who are separated from God's love. There's another aspect of this that I think some of us can find troubling. 
And that is this sense that uh, somehow uh, we are, uh, once again, as Christians, defining those who are in and who are out. That we are doing the separating, so to speak. The passage that says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That word for condemn actually means to separate. God didn't send Jesus into the world to separate, to define one up against another. But rather God sent Jesus into the world that the world might be saved. Now the word used for saved in this case can also be translated to heal to make whole, to restore. So we could say that verse in another way, and it would be a legitimate translation to say, God did not send Jesus into the world to separate out those who are saved and unsaved, but rather, God sent Jesus into the world that the world might be made whole, that the world might be healed, that the world might be restored, that you and I might be restored and made whole. I think that's a very different understanding than the understanding we often get is the role of the church, which oftentimes seems to be to separate. I'll tell you a little bit about my own story that I think relates a bit to this. I think it's very hard for us as modern day Christians, and perhaps this has been the case throughout the centuries, to really accept the fact that God does love us. That God does love those who are estranged from God so much that God was willing to send his son to be a sign and to be one who would restore and make whole and reconcile. This wonderful passage we have from Ephesians today has something in it that, that we all, I think, need to hear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. Many years ago, when I was a captain in the Air Force and I was, we were in San Antonio, uh, probably one of the most important things that happened to me in my life was being a part of a group of men that were also a part of a family group that we uh, shared uh, life with together. And there were about four couples that were involved in this. And the men would meet uh, once a week for Bible study, for prayer, for conversation, And we had done this over a period of time, and I will never forget what happened on one particular night. One night we were praying and talking, and I have no idea why everything made a lot more sense to me than it ever had before. But that particular night, I understood, not here, like something I had just read, but here, in my heart, that God accepted me and loved me just as I was. And that was transforming for me, because what I also realized in that moment was that I had been working most of my life to reconcile myself to God, and I cannot do it. It's impossible. I think this need for us to work for reconciliation with God perhaps comes from the the sense that we have that we have to work in order to be reconciled to parents, to be acceptable to our parents. Or some voice in the back of our heads that says, you're just not quite good enough yet. You need to work a little harder. Well, God says the work has been done. It's been done by the Son. Can you look upon him and believe that? Can you stop striving 
for what has been done for you already. I think Paul Tillich perhaps describes this best, and I'll end with this. This is a part of a sermon he wrote entitled, You Are Accepted. He writes, Grace strikes us when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the dark valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel that our separation is deeper than usual because we have violated another life, a life which, was, which we loved and from which we were estranged. Then he goes on, sometimes at that moment a wave of light breaks into our darkness and it is as though a voice were saying, you are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you, in the name of which you do not know. Simply accept the fact that you are accepted. Amen. Amen.